Welcome, friends, to uh, yet one more fabulous uh, installment edition of the Regeneration Podcast. Michael Martin, I'm going to begin with a question for you about an author we have in common, Nicholas Berjayev. You know something about him, don't you? Uh, yes. Okay. I think he, he's, he's one of my masters. Okay. Do you know... Well, the, all these Silver Age theologians, you know, a lot of them were in engagement with a lesser read guy because he was not, he was not in uh, anywhere connected with orthodoxy. Do you know the name Vasily Rosanov? No, I don't. Okay. These guys, he was, they would have said maybe he was the greatest prose writer um, of that generation. He was, uh, he was one of these people, um, our guest who we'll be introducing shortly mentioned, you know, a hero of mine, John Cowper Powis. And Rosanoff struck me as like him. He was he had a fascination with matter. His great symbols were like blood, even semen and so forth. But he wrote a seminal essay, and I think it might frame some of our conversation that when we invite our guests, it was called, and Berjayev wrote um, an essay that you can find online. Uh, the essay was called Sweet Jesus and the Bitter Fruits of the World. And it, it's it's such an interesting idea, right? That yeah. we love... We love Jesus so much. Jesus is so sweet that everything else becomes dried husks. And Vasily Rosenev, who loved the world, he was a sensate. I've never seen a picture of him, but I know he had rounded features. You know, and he was just engaged with the world. So he was, and hyper perceptive. And he would have thought that, you know, he was saying, especially when we think of, again, Russia, uh, Mater, the mother, materialism, this whole Russian genius with it. Yeah. He brought that Russian genius and he, he coined this framing sweet Jesus and the bitter fruits of the world. And it's instantly changes for me, the way we think about a lot of things, you know, we can be so churchy with Jesus that we forget, you know, our show regeneration of uh, politics, of agriculture, of economics. Well, go ahead. Well, that's, Just, what, that's uh Berjayev's thing, right? Is that academia and theology turns a wild animal into a domesticated animal. And I think we do the same thing with Jesus. We, we've domesticated him, right? Because of theology and et cetera. You domesticate, you domesticate the re religious experience, yeah, religious yeah. activity, right? Yeah. I think Chesterton kind of said the same thing too in many of his ways, right? So keep that's saying, you know, we'll, we'll, yeah, keep it wild. And we'll, we'll come back to that, like that idea many times. But I just thought, you know, what a neat way to say, you know, what we're exploring uh, in this Regeneration podcast. So our our guest this afternoon, and we're so glad to have him, is Dominic D'Souza. Dominic is the uh, the editor, we'll call it, we'll have him introduce ourselves, of Smart Catholics. And Smart Catholics, is it's a blog, it's kind of a, a clearinghouse of information and his ideas and so forth. But welcome, Dominic. And don't shorten this, tell people about yourself before we kind of uh, bring you into a conversation and grill you with some questions. Oh, thank you. No, honestly, you gents should just keep right on going. And I love listening to the show. And I've started listening to it from scratch all over again. And I've read your books and Mike, I've been following your, your blog and just sort of working backwards and trying to understand how you think and all. And um, as you mentioned, I'm one of the founder of, of Smart Catholics because three years ago, I got so sick and tired of what I was seeing online and kind of felt Catholics needed a new place to connect, sort of a home away from Facebook. And uh, that then continued to grow as I began to realize making just another social network it kind of perpetuates the problem. What we need is fresh leadership. Um, and I'm hungry and looking for people with specific outlooks and specific voices because I've been going on my own journey. So I've titled myself leader, it's not leader actually, learner in chief. 
at Smart mm -hmm. Catholics because I I have no degrees. I'm a hobbyist, read a book a week kind of thing, trying to understand all of the stuff that was not given to me by crook or by crook growing up. Um, so my day job is in branding and design and and that ended up emerging out of a love of storytelling. I loved writing novels and actually I've got a whole brand on the side for writing stories and, and helping other people do that. That comes, I think, back to something that is very core to me is wanting to understand the story of everything. So once you get that, everything else falls into place uh, in my mind. Um, so part of my conversion journey was, was growing up as a, a radical traditionalist, very fringe kind of cult. And then stepping away from that in the last 10 years and realizing, as I said just before the call, I need new axioms for life, and I'm not exactly sure what they are. And that's one of the reasons why, um, Michael, you said in a couple of episodes back on Regeneration how reading Tomberg just redefined your sense of what the word Catholic meant to incorporate so much more and reading that, the definition of Hermeticism and so on, that help me to see this is what needs to be rediscovered. And I don't know where this goes. I don't know who else out there thinks like this or is doing this. So I'm going to start my own sort of just journey, reading, 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 trying to understand because there is so much I don't. And I see nothing in terms of professional Catholic circles that are also thinking along these same lines. So well, very much learner in chief here. I think what I, I tell me if this is your experience, but where I became disenfranchised with, with the Catholic media slash social media is it's it's all apologetics all the time. And no, <laughs> you know, intellectual engagement or conversation. It's just bum, 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 bum. Yeah. You know what I mean? Which it's okay, <laughs> but but it, but it's not very nourishing. I'm embarrassed to say I don't even know what's out there. Like I would say, Michael, I called you and mentioned this podcast without even knowing like what other people are doing. But it's good to hear. I mean, from somebody like Dominic who well, understands well, I, media. I live 20 miles away from the headquarters of Ave Maria Radio. Okay. Right. Okay. And actually, I've visited the bookstore at. It's actually at Domino's Farms, you know, uh, owned by Tom, Tom Monahan. Sure. The greatest Catholicism money can buy. Um, so, so it's really, it permeates the, the culture around here. It's all, it's really all, play. and it's, I mean, it's not, it's not horrible, but it's about, it's apologetics. And then only goes so far, you know, it's mm -hmm. doesn't, you know, you look back and if you think in Catholic history to, uh, the great moments of of culture in Catholic history, even uh, I mean, you mentioned Tomberg, but I would I would go you know to uh, describe for people who Tomberg is. I know we mentioned him, but it's funny because we've done an episode on Steiner. We talk about Blake and like really unpack it. Uh, a, a quick quick Tomberg bio, Mike, or I mean, well, actually, well, there's a new biography out on him. I saw, but fact, uh, I just got it. The Lenten Tomberg and the monumental work Meditations in the Tarot, right? Yeah, well, Valentin Tomberg had been a he was a, he was an Estonian or Russian esotericist who, be, who got into anthroposophy and eventually found his way into the Catholic Church and wrote probably one of the more miraculous you know, um, amazing books of the 20th century and maybe miraculous theology. is a key word right it's the meditations on the tarot yeah. 
and and in a, few, in a few weeks we'll be interviewing uh robert powell who translated that book into english um in 19 early 1980s and i was just remembering gosh get this back in the day i so i don't know how i came into it but i came into a manila folder with some of the uh Un uncorrected proofs, I don't even call them proofs, uncorrected manuscript of Meditations on the Tarot from Robert Powell. Huh. And I gave it to a friend of mine. I don't know why I did that, but it was kind of a, it would be an interesting thing. Like, to what do out. you mean? What do you, what do you mean? You came in, like, there was just a big file you found that yes. had like, well, wow. I got it at a bookstore. Yeah. And I was like, wow, what's this? And, and I, I bought it or I think I took, I can't remember how it worked. Yeah. Somebody gave it to me and, and I gave it to a friend of mine. Um, and you're saying this is like, these are the words that like Tomberg himself typed out on a page or something? No, these were the oh. words that Robert Powell typed out on the page. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, yeah, I think the Tomberg's <laughs> original manuscript <laughs> might be. Well, I think be Robert, like the Dead Sea Scrolls of modern esotericism, well, right? No, I yeah. think Robert Powell has the original, at least he did. Yeah, yeah. Because somebody sure. gave it to him to uh -huh. translate. Um, but, but, I, but I think if we look at catholic culture intellectual culture you know there have there are great moments of it and i think uh in the 20th century with oh, hans urs von balthasar in the communio circle you know and i and he he on the back here i just happen to have it right here my copy of meditations on the tarot that i bought in 1985 when it came out and there's an endorsement from hans urs von balthasar on the back and actually he wrote uh the afterwards to the german yeah. to the german edition which in the recent edition by angelico press it's in but that was an that was an interesting moment um with von balthazar and henri de lubac and Teilhard de chardin they're all they're all friends and they were they were doing something pretty remarkable in theology you know and so and quick they, interjection i spent the whole weekend zooming in to a von balthazar conference that was hosted in Rochester, New York. It's the 50th anniversary of Comunio. Yeah. Present in Rochester was Jean-Luc Marion, uh, like yeah. all the heavy hitters. Tracy Rowland flew in from Australia. Did she do? Yeah, and I'll have to, uh, boy, I have a lot to say about what I heard, but uh, continue. I mean, it was it was wild what well, I Well, I think to. that was an important moment. And it I was, think it was. If you looked at the, the, the agrarian movement and literature in America, that was, you know, with, um, that was an important moment. Mm -hmm. in catholic letters i mean even if he's kind of a fringe person because he's not catholic but t.s Eliot, for sure and or brother uh brother antoninus uh mm -hmm. william everson i mean there were so many cool things happening in the middle of the 20th century in, in catholic letters and, th and thinking and it's in the meantime it's been you know kind of you know yeah. squelched and turned into apologetics and there's not really anything remotely like that and, I, and in fact the reason i started jesus the imagination was because there's nothing like that you know i don't know if i succeeded there but that's that was the impulse behind it is come on guys yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's got to be something so tell us more than dominic you know like uh do you feel like naming the organization you grew up in and like how did you find it stifling we're not looking to like uh bad mouth anything but you know start telling your story Okay. Um, you, well, <clears throat> you mentioned um, 
Michael, like the amount of uh, apologetics that's out there. And I think it's because it got first to the table with online media. Um, but that's actually a very deep part of my background. My dad himself is an apologist. That's kind of his been his bread and butter since, well, since forever. And we've moved all over the world. Like I was born in New Zealand. He was from Brazil. My mom was from California. And then what's your dad's name? Raymond de Souza. He lives. Oh, yeah, I've seen it. Yeah, up near you, New York. Yeah. And um, uh, he lived in South Africa and Canada for a while, and then you know New Zealand. We then grew up in Australia. Lived for a year in France, a couple of months in Fiji, and then now settled in the United States. And it's just funny how things end up shaking out we were on the sort of the fringe of the fringe of this cult never truly accepted and the the group is called um tradition family property very uh, apocalyptical uh elitist um very anti-vatican II, very uh radical traditionalist that sort of thing like right on the edge you know with um like society pius x that sort of thing mm -hmm. and um uh, we were never like completely accepted into it. So we were sort of fighting for acceptance because there's something a bit different or just battles with the hierarchy or whatever. So in my growing up, um, I was always trying to be the, the good little soldier and reading the foundational documents of this group more than things like the catechism or sacred scripture or anything. And um, uh, then came one point where I think it was just literally dating my wife started to well who then became my wife uh started to open up things she just started she just asked it's kind of adultery questions. that's not adultery go ahead yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah she just asked simple little questions or it was just her presence you know yeah. and um as a as a sidebar just this past week um jonathan peugeot or no his brother peugeot and um Jordan Peterson yeah. had a, a wonderful uh, conversation about Genesis and so on. And they made this amazing comparison or, or um, how do you call it? Exploration of the role of Adam and the role of Eve and how the role of Adam, his, his job primarily is to, uh, to, to name things, to be the, the one who uh, creates the theories, the one who delineates and defines and so on. Uh, the one who, who impresses the order, but, Eve's role is to be the receptive one who communicates with the things that are being named, who speaks with those fringes and allows them to come back. And she provides that, that loving admonition, that loving argument, not to destroy, but to, uh, to make what is being built, you know, stronger. And in my case, that's what was starting to happen to me from, from the inside. And the Pope Francis had just been elected and and this was the first time I'd ever really taken the uh, Pope seriously or started paying attention to him. Uh, up until that point, you know, the Holy Fathers were always sidelined or, or you know, uh, put down. And then I remember there being one day where I realized where I just got stuck. You know, I would I realized I would have to be smarter than the Pope to decide if I could accept what he had to say or not. And I could never imagine doing that. I wouldn't have I wouldn't live long enough. So. I was I was then stuck um, because of course I'm now making myself the pope, or at least that's sort of the attitude. Uh, so I started reading. One of the things that really kind of pushed me to rethink a lot of the things that I'd come to understand was actually archaeology. And I we grew up watching Indiana Jones, so I loved that sort of thing. And I was introduced to uh, Graham Hancock and all of his research about 
all the ancient pyramids and how fascinating this stuff is. And so I started following and reading his writing, like take, trying to understand what this meant because it doesn't fit the timeline that traditionalist uh, Catholicism uh, and materialist Catholicism follows. And he's just making all, not these assumptions, but these conclusions that didn't make any sense at all. Fast forward a couple of years later, and I'm reading Language of Creation by, by Jonathan Pajot and his brother, Mathieu, um, discovered Michael's work through somebody sharing something about the green man. And I was one of those kids, again, reading constantly and loving adventure and fairies and so on, and desperately wishing they were real. And then to that article- They are. Yeah. Well, there you go. <laughs> I was gonna go there, but it's okay. <laughs> I, I, let's, we'll get there. Yep. But Michael, you're, you're a host about the green man. I did not understand. I wanted to understand how that could be because there was something echoed and was just resonating. So I went and I bought your books and have been uh, started reading them. Uh, and that's when um, I discovered, you know, Richard Rohr, Cynthia Bourgeau, and then fell into Tomberg and decided I have no idea who this Steiner is that he keeps referring to. And uh, after reading the tarot and Lazarus come forth, some of these others, I need to dig into Steiner and start getting into that. And of course, Michael, as you said, it's it's a completely different world. And pushing into that, reading things like um, Théo de Chardin, uh, Rupert Sheldrake's also been, you know. So I've, I'm discovering this galaxy of people challenging the this silly flattened materialist viewpoint, um, allowing the reintegration, the reenchanting of of creation, you know, and um, so I'm I kind of at a point where I'm skidding around. I feel like uh, building a fresh framework that's so completely different to, to how I grew up. But I feel like it's like that slipping into that Eve mode of what are all of the fringes that have been ignored um, as the the West and as Catholicism has doubled down on the apologetics of clear, you know, definitions. What are all of the the more uh, mystical and intuitive and um you know uh courses of of exploration and discovery and, and so on yeah. that the church didn't has not integrated for a variety of reasons maybe no in, ill intention involved i'm so far calling it maybe the western digression the western hiatus as we're now reintegrating things like the patristics and vatican ii gives us um, or I should maybe say endorses at large a framework for how to integrate or deal with or dialogue with all of the other traditions. And then this just rush of beauty and this discovery of a, all of these lost traditions. And I'll kind of wrap in a second. What's so funny I find for me is the um, rabid fear of modernism uh, growing up everything was like modernist masonic yeah. gnostic you know mm -hmm. that's anything terrible or bad of course those are the the usual culprits take the anti-modernist oath <laughs> <laughs> and then i go and i read stuff like Tomberg and steiner and tayard and powis now who sits in my mind right between tayard and steiner what are you what are you reading from powis i mean get talk about an unwieldy corpus it's almost steinerian go ahead well his I'm forgetting his title. It's that one book that he did on uh, the complex vision. Oh yeah, it's, it's wild, isn't it? Through yeah. because you yeah. recommended it. Yeah, I, I tell you, it's it's hard reading. The easiest yeah. parts are when he sort of waxes rhetorical, and then uh -huh. then it's easier. But it's powerful. Like I it sit, is. I'm looking at this, and I'm I'm 
intensely frustrated because I spent one year at Christendom College. And I think there's a lot of good that's often done and tries to be done. But I read all of these things, the things that I've been reading, and I'm like, how is this not some kind of more easily digestible course on all of these things? These things should be whatever. Catholic philosophy, like 101, whatever, to re-engage with the real. Anyhow, coming back to modernism. What I find hilarious is we were terrified of modernists coming in and, and maintaining the surface level of the words and then changing all of the meanings. And today, you know, we're, we're so adamant. We preserve the plain and obvious intention of what the church means to teach. But then you go and you sort of swap out your axioms, you swap out your ruling vision, and the words all stay the same, and you go back to the ancient wisdom traditions and realize maybe this is why the church is so reticent to define things um, with the kind of clarity that everybody begs for, because her mind and her heart is more on these, you know, coming out of these wisdom traditions, and the rest of us have absolutely no idea what that is. So we're the modernists, uh, and we need to rediscover what Margaret Barker, you know, is, is yep. putting back into the limelight, what sociology, and uh, like I said, I'm just listing off stuff just because these last 10 years feel like a, a university course of just constant immersion and now I'm trying to synthesize, I'm trying to understand, and hence following you all and chatting with you. So I, I, the thing that comes to mind, and I, in fact, I was talking about this with my students this week because uh, in this one class, because um, the, the text for the, these two or three weeks is uh, Ivan Illich's ABC. ABC, one, the alphabetization of the Western mind. I've read it that's at right. least six times. Yeah, which it's wonderful, and the students are really into it. It's a challenging text for undergrads, but yeah, but but it's important because it makes us think about what is the role of literacy, right? Yep. And and it's complicated because I mean, God, I have a PhD in English, so I'm I'm, I'm totally into the the literacy project, but. What is what is it that happens with becoming literate? Are, and, and part of it is part is the, the socialization or mass formation project. And so you, you know you go to go to public school or you, you go to a tradi school, and you get the you get the company line right. You get this is these are the things we're we're, we're pushing for. And this is what we're all the reading material is leading you to this end right. And very little of it is leading you to an ex uh, a relationship with the real. So if you're at a public school, and I was surprised because I'm 60 and my students are, you know, I think in this class, they're probably 19 or 20. And I was asking them what books they read in high school. And they were the same books I read in high school. The Great Gatsby. The almost yeah. The Great Gatsby. I was, I was to kill a mockingbird, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, they, It's the same stuff that they've been doing for 50 years. Yeah. Um, and it was kind of done um and there's nothing wrong with those books you know i think they're great books too but what and i asked them when when i left them today i said i want you guys to think because we're we just started fall break i said think about this what is education for and if you, especially for those of you who are going want to go into education what could it be you know because i think that's that's part of what illich is doing in his his project mm -hmm. is asking us to interrogate our own assumptions and then interrogate the, the structures with which we find and within which we find ourselves. And, and it's interesting though, so we, Dominic was mentioning how 
when the internet first got going, it was the apologetics that was like, that's the, that's the first wave. But I also think, and I think you see this in Rod Dreher, right? Where- Who's moving to Hungary. Calls, yeah. Is he? Uh, that's what I heard. Well, the apologetics- it strikes me as crazy, by the way. Go impulse, ahead. Well, uh, I, he's, yeah, he's got trouble. I mean, yeah. I feel sorry for the guy. I, don't, I do yeah. not dislike him, but, yeah. but uh, the apologetic uh, emphasis is about getting it right, getting the, you gotta get it, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, drill sergeant <laughs> theology in a way, right? Making sure everybody gets it right. But this, if you look through history, whenever the church, just about whenever the church called for, for uh, um, what do you call it, uh, a council, it was because they were freaked out that people weren't getting it right. right. So if you go back to, uh, what was the one uh, the Lateran Council, which is when they got, when they tightened up the Eucharist, when they decided that the, the faithful didn't get, didn't need to get the holy blood, right? Because mm -hmm. we got to straighten things up here. And then with Trent, they're like, okay, you got a reformation, we're going to give you a counter reformation. Okay. So it's all about tightening up the ship and, and laying down the law again. And then Vatican One, Vatican Two, the same thing, right? Um, it's they're usually born out of panic by the administrative class or the elite class, you could say, right? Because if you think about this, throughout most of, of Catholic history, the the laity, the peasantry, kind of moved moved along, ignorant of what was going on with church politics. You know they did their festivals, they did their May Days, you know, they they did the liturgy, you know, they, they were totally into the Catholic way of living. But then the Reformation comes and says, well, you can't do that. That's not Christian. And then there's the pushback. And eventually, and as, as I'm trying to think who it was that's mentioned this, but what happened from the the Counter-Reformation is that the Catholic Church itself became more Protestant. For sure it did. You know, so, and to me, I think there's more Catholicism in, in the poetry of Robert Herrick, who was an Anglican priest, and, than most Catholic theology since the 17th century, because it's based on really Munio, not an intellectual, <laughs> you know, seminar system, but it's really about the community and how you do Catholicism. How do you do it? You know, in a in an authentic relationship to the real. How do you do that? Rather than, well, do we have the rules right? Let's, you know, those people who are like, I can't really do this right now because it says here. And lived experience uh, will teach you that uh, uh, the way to that. And, and it's interesting. I mentioned that I, I gave a. a a talk at Cambridge University a couple weeks ago, and it was on Pavel Florensky, even though I was by Zoom. Um, and the first sentence of Pavel Florensky's monumental book, The Pillar and Ground of the Truth, is, in fact, it's right here. I'll, I, don't have to, I don't have to remember. I can tell you what it says. And so what it says is living religious experience is the sole legitimate way to gain knowledge of the dogmas. Yeah, shouldn't that, that be so self-evident? Right. That is how I'd like to express the general theme of my book, uh -huh. right? And I think 
and I never got that. I don't know about you, but I, you know, I went to Catholic school. You know, Catholic Catholic school was thirteen of the best, you know, years of my life. Catholic high school was six of the best years of my yeah. life. You know, but I didn't get that, and I was definitely a person who hungered for that. And that would, in in religion classes or catechism, I would always ask those questions, and you know, we're not interested in that right now. You know, we're gonna. We're talking about you know sin i said well i know the ways to sin <laughs> tell me tell me how to know jesus mm -hmm. by not sinning okay well okay fine because you know what i'm talking about right we we've and that to me seems an authentic what, what florensky is talking about there is an authentic way into a religious life that um short circuits the the manualist, and you can call it the manualist, but you can just call it, you know, the the left hand of the catechism approach. That's what I've been lately calling again the disease of religion, which Jesus came to cure, right? Like yeah. this thing where we memorize some formulas, you know, tightening the ship, this thing that can be just clearly handed on. Um, you know, I think we can only see the the position we're in and the urgency of us getting out of this position for sanity you know I'm, I'm basically a one-trick pony on like the mental health of young people right. but um you know we're now reaping the fruits of giving people this religion and it's really dangerous to the mind you know it's and, not religious experience it's religion and we can't apologetics our way out of this trouble no 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 and your favorite whipping boy michael yeah right well it's like you know you know <laughs> the old joke i cut this pipe off three times and it's still too short mm -hmm. right that's that's kind of apologetics. Yeah. <laughs> so this sounds like it mirrors your journey, you know, Dominic. Kind of share, share, you know, what you've discovered. Um, you know, and and he said, like, you know, you've just been reading so much, a book a week. Um, you know, maybe it's like, what are the questions? Not that Michael and I would have answers. You know, what's surfacing for you? Because I think your journey is emblematic in one sense you know it's funny that you mentioned the names uh, dan haran is on your website and richard Rohr. and after a while i had a roar phase and i can't say that he's not there like i can read his books with profit mm -hmm. um uh at this von balthazar conference i mentioned and when i read richard Rohr, you know like like anything we need a tripartite anthropology back right body soul and spirit and that's crucial to steiner you know it's a seminal moment in yeah. history where he says and yet this von balthasar conference was just talking about body and soul all the time and it left me dry and i wonder if tell me if i have a, a too simple understanding of roar but he, he's got all these fowlers and they, they identify as like our path is non-dualistic and maybe Bourgeau is a little bit like that and I'm not trying to tie a tripartite anthropology to non-dualism, but I think non-dualism can only take us so far, right? Um, what is Rohr doing now? I know he's so popular. I wonder why he leaves me dry. I was once at a conference, the diocese invited all these big names to give what's called the ministerium, the roster diocese. And it's uh, you know all the, the priests and laity who work for the church. And two of the big names um, were able to say yes, so they had them both. One was Timothy Radcliffe, who was the, the leader of the Dominicans at the time. And he, uh, I had just been named to run my parish as a layman. And Timothy Radcliffe put me at ease. He wrote a book on like why we go to mass or something. But he also stood in front of people and his shirt was untucked like mine always is. His fly could have been down. And he said, uh, you know, I think we need to, he was just thinking out loud. And it was very humorous. You know, I think we just need to like let things die. 
And I thought that was very freeing. Richard Rohr got up there and he was very intense. You know, and he was just, he was almost like giving us another program that like, we're all dumb because we can't get the non-dualism thing. And he almost seemed angry, you know, but that's, and I've read a lot of books, <laughs> but tell me like, so go through some of your heroes, like, and Pope Francis uh, too, you know, I, I love him. And then he seems to be his own worst enemy sometimes. Um, start reflecting on some of these heroes or these people who have jumped out to you, you know? I mean, in that you're, you're asking a type five to like, you're just giving him carte blanche. So I'm, I'm probably going to throw that back and say, I need more guardrails here, but let me yeah. just speak briefly to, to Roar. I can't speak to his whole corpus and everything he's yeah. written. I've only read a couple. Um, yeah. His one book where he wrote, um, what was it? The Naked Now, Seeing How the Mystics See. I read that 10 years ago. And that was, I think it was the book that really kicked me along my journey. Because um, yeah. I didn't know Good what I was him. doing at the time. Yeah. And what that opened up, it, it softened me towards this understanding that there is a, a mystical, uh, through direct experience of Christ and the saints and the angelic and the spiritual and so on, that is not only as valid as what you get from the pulpit and the canon, whatever, but it's, it's almost more valid because it's the necessary feminine corrective to the all too abstract amen, you know, amen. Um, of, of the masculine tendency, you know, and I had never read anything as, you know, rigorously in love with the, the mystical side of the church. And so, like I said, that softened me towards what have I been missing my whole life? Because I, I used to hate the catechism, I confess. It was, it was boring. I was a kid. I wanted to play and have fun, draw superheroes and so on. I used to hide the catechism book, you know, behind the, um, the TV in the living room. Was, it, was uh, it that children's Baltimore catechism, the gray and red one? You know, I, I it might have been, but it was like large and maroon and it had oh, that, that, was the, that was the Baltimore catechism. Okay, the, the, probably. The straight I mean, up we had that. We had that everywhere. Now I'm reading yeah. like, you know, Bentley Hart and and thanks to your recommendation, Michael, Kinogaya, which just just blew me away. And now I'm reading Bentley Hart a lot more seriously. And I it's just, I'm it's so beautiful. I'm at such a loss at how hopeful and how beautiful an antidote this is to the, the rigorism, the legalism, the, the elitism. And and I think this is one of the things that I'm learning how to do um, is one to be a lot more forgiving to well, to myself and to my past and understand that stuff like tribalism in the church is just a standard human response to anything. We have the truth. You can't because we have to, you know, and, and so you draw lines and, and you know, uh, kill those who don't fit in and so on or isolate them and censor them. That's just a normal human thing. Cult is when you take that that tribal need for belonging and then you elevate it into a form of spiritual abuse and apocalypticism. And we see that happening everywhere. I mean, I, this is this is kind of, kind of been my trouble is leaving one cult and then kind of falling into another or being afraid of that and now seeing them in a way almost everywhere because I don't don't know what the cause could be um necessarily but you have you know cults within families within parishes you know of of personalities and so on they happen online they happen at the state level the country level and so on this so, is really good using the word cult to get at some of this i i've been talking to a guy recently and i know he listens to this but he would say back in the day steubenville you know i, I think it was different than it is now but he had gone from a true cult whether it was Hare krishna's they started dating a girl that was Steubenville and a certain form of that said, I just joined another cult. Right. But you've got a nose for this. It sounds like. Well, there was a really good video. I'm not sure if I can remember it. 
anyhow, there's a good video online um, and I can send it to you afterwards that yeah. just showed how, you know, you, humans start by being tribes and we do tribes for everything. Everything is a tribe, mm -hmm. but then cult is when you get spiritual about it. And if you're not in, you're in, you're, you're in hell. And anyhow, so uh, coming back to Roar, uh, like I said, I've read only a couple of his books and so on, and, and I've watched a a host of his videos and so on this he is pushing i think the non-dual line very strongly at first blush and i think that there are a lot of people who caught on because he is franciscan and catholic but they hear him echoed in uh they hear themselves echoed in what he says because he is um he's so easily able to recognize the good in native religions in, in paganism or in, in wicca in buddhism it's and great so on. yeah and he can great. speak to all these and people are not used to Catholic influences doing that. And of course, a lot of these traditions are non-dualist. And so everybody's chanting and so on. But you keep watching him, you keep reading him, and he will consistently say, you have to learn to be non-dualist so that you can reintegrate. And, and again, come back to that, that tripartite. You can only be truly, you know, in that sense, non-dualist from the third point of view. Mm -hmm. And then there is that reintegration back into the whole thing stop dividing everything into two pieces and most people don't get that far and, and i and, and i have to wonder i mean the that the kind of dualism we're talking about here mm. um was probably always implicit would be always easy to think of creation in those terms but after descartes it became not only did it become uh, uh emphasized but it also became the the cause of secularism right mm -hmm. unintended but that's what it, that's what it was and which is why you know my my period in uh literary studies is the 17th century in particular and that's when the push against uh the pure nature came around which is what de lubac was all about in sur naturel which is mm -hmm. why he got he got he got the curse he got the papal curse for that one um but he was right, and John Milbank, I think, was his. I think John Milbank wrote this little book on De Lubac. It's called uh, "The Suspended Middle." I think it's just fantastic. Brilliant book, brilliant book. And uh, and I, interestingly enough, um, if you look into the 17th century, I mentioned it before on this podcast, but uh, thinkers that are now called Hermetic thinkers or cult thinkers, like. Uh, Robert Flood or Henry Vaughn or Thomas Vaughn or part Paracelsus, they were rejecting that that uh, call it societal or, or cultural dualism that was being foisted upon Christendom at the time because they thought that was that was antithetical to what it is to be Christian, right? Mm -hmm. And I've written about this in just about every book I've written. Um, and but but on this by the same token, I think it's important that, as Mike mentioned, one of Rudolf Steiner's main points of emphasis is uh, in the tripartite anthropology of the spirit, soul, and the body. And if you think of it in those terms, I mean, it's much more healthy. Because if I you ask people, I mean, any any Christians, but in particular Catholics, you know what the difference between the spirit and the soul are, they cannot tell you, generally speaking. They, they, can't, they can't come up with the thing. Mm -hmm. They don't know the difference. Now, I don't think it's true that as Steiner 
posits that that it's some council in the middle is the, the spirit was exiled. You mean you mean the fourth theology. council of Constance or whatever in eight sixty nine? Yeah. It's like a hinge point for Steinerites, Dominic. You know, no, that I don't they, think that happened. I mean, I don't think that's true, but I've read a lot into it that I think you can see things in history. It is true. Yeah. Oops. I think you froze up there well, a little bit, Michael. You can see Michael. with nominalism, yeah. right? Okay, yeah. Um, you, can see, you can see with nominalism that this started to show up, right? And then... Am I, am I frozen still? You're No, not anymore. Uh, okay, nope. good. Yes, nominalism, and that, that goes back to the Middle Ages. Things start to get really uh, sketchy when, with uh, the way we think of, anth of Christian anthropology. And it becomes reductive to soul and spirit, or soul and body. Yeah. Let me let me phrase this question then another way, and this would show my ignorance. I think I've I probably read like six or seven war books and saw them talk. But is there um? So if we say you know that Buddhism has a non-dualism, can we make a distinction between like a world affirming non-dualism and a word a world negating non-dualism, or is non-dualism non-dualism? I guess I probably have this bias that a non-dualism ends up being kind of world denying and doesn't necessarily take us to the real you know that um tell me dominic i don't know that i could uh answer it sufficiently for you um, yeah <clears throat> so knowing some of his sources points mm -hmm. indicates to me that i think he knows a lot more than he lets on and okay. he will simplify things a lot as as dense as he often is but he will simplify i think a lot of his conclusions for a, a general audience but knowing mm -hmm. that he's rubbing shoulders with people like cynthia Borjo and sure. his reading sources like gurdjieff um and i have no idea how many others so i've then tried to go on to to read those understanding that if that's where he's coming from then i'm pretty sure that uh as one continues to spend that time with him it is a world affirming yeah yeah and one thing i really like about him is and i've never done it i don't know my enneagram number but i i love somebody who can kind of throw back in the face those people who have their apologetics tape that the enneagram comes from sufi mysticism ergo it's a tool of the devil right yeah oh. and that's just two 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 common so i'm glad that roar with his big name oh, that's has right. published yeah. two volumes on the enneagram and i want to lift him up and say god bless you richard roar for that okay. stupid apologetics point right <laughs> Is this the point where I mentioned yoga pants? <laughs> you know about the yoga pants thing, right? No, I don't. Tell me. They're from the devil. They're from the devil. Okay, really? Wow. Didn't I mean, know it's, it. not, it's not really flattering fashion. I just want to say that. But Along, but, along uh, those lines, like that point of yoga, like this is, again, one of the things like that really want, pushed me to want to start something like Smart Catholics is one, nobody I knew was having discussions like, you know, the, the names that I'm putting it together. And that we're talking about here, and at least in Catholic circles, I'm I don't know where they are being found. So I figure I'm just going to see what I can do to start it. But I remember one of my um, a collaborator, somebody else in ministry, uh, he would he was terrified to publicly align himself with the Holy Father because he had a variety of suppliers who are quite avidly against the Holy Father. He didn't want to tread on toes and so on. He dealt with a lot of traditionalist people. But at the same time, he would have an extremely anti-yoga priest come on and talk about how the whole thing is of the devil. And I'm like, you're prepared to burn bridges with these people, but not with these people. What's, you can't, you can't do that, you know? So as I've been, you know, again, especially reading Tomberg, 
um, I already had like a latent um, appreciation for these extremely ancient wisdom traditions and so on. In a way, Tomberg for me was like the permission to, to keep taking it seriously. And that's one of the reasons why I love that. But uh, to understand that there, there's this incredible place in history where we are now, where the, the global human family has been brought together. And I think my generation and the next generation is one of the first that has begun to uh, see the world in terms of a human family. Uh, this is an important thing. Stay with this, this generational piece. People will know I'm interested in that. Yeah. And I know that you've, you, you've written on this with the youth. I think that up and I mean, up until the last, this past century has been in my mind, so, so radically transformative in terms of stuff, like how, how we consider and conceive of ourselves as people. And it's been very easy before the advent of the car and and the telephone and then the internet to just allow people who don't think like us to just be over there and not actually have to deal with them. Now we turn on the news and we're seeing wars happening in completely different countries and we're able to tap into influencers who live in other countries and are sharing ideas and worldviews that we would never hear down at the local parish. We, anybody, nobody lives close to the local market or their local parish in a way we're such a disembodied world because we live so far from things that we believe are valuable and, and real to us. I love your, both the fact that you farm and garden. Um, but at the same time, there is this tissue, I think maybe it was Steiner who called it, that's connected us through, through this internet, um, through online communication, this ability to, to speak with each other, to learn so quickly, to have um, AI, for example, parsing, petabytes of literature and data and for us to be able to research and learn anything i think about thomas aquinas and what he did uh to to salvage and and renaissance the greeks and now we're at a point where i think it's the charism of the first world west to now do this again and to renew ourselves with everything else from so much else that's good uh from everywhere but at the yeah. same time there's <clears throat> go ahead mark this way well, I think I think we're ripe for a Renaissance, right? You know, um, as the the Florentine Renaissance, even though Bergai was not a big fan of it, what was beautiful about it, the Florentine Renaissance, was that all these things you're talking about, Dominic, with with um, uh, the, taking in the wisdom traditions of other other faiths you know like pico de, de la marindola for he was he brought in the wisdom of the of the kabbalah and he brought in the wisdom of uh the egyptians Her, hermes traditionist he and he brought all this stuff in and he kind of amalgamated it and turned and transmitted it into a christian vision and then luther came around and, and it, was, it was game over Ooh, but that was a perfect beautiful moment yeah. in history this is something it was it was it was a beautiful christian history and, yeah. and even with michelangelo right the the great uh image of god creating adam and i've i've i had looked at that in i don't know well in, in books anyway a gazillion times through my life until angel that god the father has his arm around is sophia and that was what yeah. Michelangelo was included that there because he was that's a direct quote from Proverbs eight, mm -hmm. right? 
direct quote from I couldn't Robert believe that. Sapien painting. Just loved reading your work and then get you know exploring Margaret Barker. And in one mowing the lawn became a transcendent thing for me after that. And <laughs> just starting to just simply pray to her and recreate oh so much to, to want to talk about. Um I do want to come back to to one point though about wisdom tradition. I think this is something that now something that I hunger for. Because like, I, I want to understand, I want to know what's there, what's been what's been missing, what we should be open to, and how not just how it works, but how it's lived. And I think the one thing that has probably saved me from completely going off the rails and becoming the kind of academic that I'm terrified of uh, has been um, my family. And for the last 10 years or so, my wife has been uh, very badly sick. She had Lyme disease and so on, has been very so sorry to hear recuperating. That. Yeah. Thank you. So I've had to learn how to not only be a dad, but also, you know, run the home and do all the cooking and, and all of this stuff. And it was actually in reading Gurdjieff that I couldn't help but laugh and had a flash of insight where he would talk about the function of a wisdom school and of a mystery school and how they would work. And the first thing that you do when you come in is, is you, you shut up, you don't learn anything and you go work and you dig or you carry that rock from there to there over and over. We need to literally change out all of the cells in your body and give you fresh matter to work with because you're currently imprinted with everything that you thought of before. So we need to change all that for two years. One, during that time, we need to decenter your ego. And the guy would just, the, the, the guru or, or you know, Gurdjieff would walk by and, and whistle or something. And then everybody had to freeze. Didn't matter what you were doing. We'll try to get around it. The point was it would be an impossibly uncomfortable moment where you had to freeze and hold it until you fell over. And part of what that was was to help you understand, you need to realize um, your desire to control your own body is good up to a point, then you have to learn to let it go so that you can more freely be present in, in your body. All of this is sort of setting you up to begin to understand these more deeper things. But until the tool itself is refined, you're incapable of truly making sense of these things. And I read that and I um, I felt a sense of hopeful relief in looking back at the last 10 years and realizing that's kind of been my call that I failed terribly in, in all kinds of ways of little one, you know, waking up in bed at night or uh, you know, crying or, or accidents happening or needing to just stop everything and take care of it. This has helped me to begin to see the family is of itself a mystery school and it can teach its members yep. all of that same training that one would get uh, in a mystery school because you are constantly having to to decenter to practice to enter into that space of free and forgiving love um like how it says love is uh not just turning a blind eye to somebody's deficiencies but sort of laughing in a sense of, of humor and, and freedom at how imperfect they are but knowing the beauty that and the perfection that is latent there and that can be there and you know and i'm so flattered in somebody's reading powies it's great i'm yeah it's great dominic what you're what you're doing here dominic, before you you got about the anxiety out there possibilities of nuclear war things i never thought would happen and mm -hmm. yesterday, somebody asked on social media, what are you doing to prepare for a possibility of nuclear war? And I'm like, you're fading a little bit. Else you? Yeah. But anyway, I, I said, I, 
chop wood and carry water. Yeah, I saw that. I saw that? that. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Yeah. So interesting, you know. Um, so Mike seized up okay. a little bit there so, again. Um, Dominic, tell me, like, do you, with your dad, Raymond D'Souza, I think I've heard that name. What does he think about your journey? Um, do you guys talk on a regular basis? So how would you describe him? I don't want to turn him into a character that he's just a, um, a Raymond Arroyo, who's not an apologist, but he's just, um, you know, tell me, how's this, uh, what do you learn from that exchange? We, we've been estranged for the last 10 years. I'm so, so sorry to hear that. Yep. Um, Does I, he think you're going to hell? I don't know. I'm sure he hopes I doesn't. I think he's yeah. probably sure I will. What was um, that? Do you mind? And again, back away from anything that's too personal. I mean, was, mm-hmm. was there a, you know, where do you kind of locate the breaking point? Was it just about ideas about things? Well, you know, one of the, one of the things that <clears throat> really changed um my confidence, I think, in my relationship with him was, well, a couple of different things. One of the things was at the time, 10 years ago, my parents were, were going through a very sad and difficult breakup and that led to an annulment. Okay. And for me, what was very weird and difficult about that was uh, they'd been married for like, I don't know, but, well, I'm like, I'm 34 now. They were married for over 20, 24 or something odd years. They had eight kids. Um, they're both very prominent Catholics and uh, that then led to an annulment. And then he's uh-huh. also uh, an apologist and, and you know, they're both radical traditionalists and so on. Um, one of the things that really forced me to rethink things was the, the question was put to him about the new mass and whether it was valid or not, you know, because we're constantly in this source of tension of where do we go to mass and and can we go down the street here? And we had a friend staying with us who had no problem, who, of course, with the... I'm not even sure what it's called now, the new mass, the Paul and Wright, the Novus Ordo, I don't know what particular mm-hmm. name is for it these days. And um, one of my brothers asked him at one point, like, is it actually okay now? Like, and, and his, his response was, it might be, I haven't had time to investigate that, I'm too busy. Interesting. Yeah. And for me that, I couldn't accept that because yeah. this is supposed to be the most important thing. This, you know, following all of the rites and the rituals to a T was the most important thing to a radical traditionalist life. You have to, the, the liturgy is you know, the most important thing. And I confess, I rebelled against that. I didn't like that. Uh, it existed to the exclusion of everything else um, in, in life. And I, anyhow, I was too creative, I think, for that. I want, I love this once, this scene from The Hunchback of Notre Dame, the, the cartoon, where it ends with, uh, I think it is, uh, sort of, an, I could say, an embodiment of Sophia bringing the glory of the liturgy, the heart of the liturgy, out into the world. Sophia is, is found out in the world, and all of these characters rediscover Sophia and bring her, uh, the, the festivals and the liturgy to life, outside the confines of the building of the cathedral. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was, that was beautiful, and that, that really captured something. I guess, isn't there like an apologetics point there, almost to say that the word mass comes from missa, which is the, the sending forth, to right? To go, yeah. Yeah, right, right. And, then, and we've yeah, really yeah. lost that, boy. We've lost that ability to, I think, um, allow for, for mystery. Uh, I don't yeah. think apologetics really <laughs> knows what to do with that or, or likes that. So, um, Can we all agree that it's yeah. like, it's, a, it's an age-appropriate thing, right? I want to say it's something, you know, um, you're familiar with the biological term neoteny, you know, like you're looking for, um, 
you're looking for some of your guidance from science. Neoteny is the notion that you can breed adolescent traits into adulthood. So, you know, a dog that still has its floppy ears and the tail wags, it's a neotenous wolf, right? It's a wolf that they've bred over time. The, you know, the adolescent traits can go into adulthood. And um, you can go to those websites about like neoteny where some people think that's the future. You can keep young men kind of like restless and kind of happy and like not mature. And, uh, um, and so, but apologetics, you know, at a certain point, I think you, it can be a launching pad, but I do think you have to leave it behind you. It reminds me, didn't we all love it when we were kind of uh, reading Chesterton in college or something or right out of college for me? But um, eventually, I think that's supposed to point to something else. And I think, you know, when he uh, made it fun. Yeah, right, right. right. <laughs> yeah. Um, and again, was that even apologetics or not? It was a worldview. It was great. But I was interested in apologetics for a while. Then I think um, I, I still love that uh, that Sesame Street song that had every great singer in the world. You know, you got to put down the ducky if you want to play the saxophone. You know, Ernie wanted to play the saxophone, but he couldn't let go of his rubber ducky. And everybody was reminding him, you got to let go of one thing to move on. And apologetics should be a stage, but the Catholic Church has kind of bred it into adulthood, you know. And maybe this can get both of you riffing. I do want to interject because it's fresh in my mind that I was clued in this whole weekend to this Von Balthasar conference. And you mentioned like David Bentley Hart. Uh, there was one whole panel on apocastasis. And of course, they were talking about Bentley Hart and on and so many different panels. And I don't know if I'm going to find the words here. Um, so again, Steiner has an evolutionary worldview, right? You know, that we're becoming 2000 years after the incarnation of the logos. It's kind of residing more in us. Mm -hmm. Well, in apocastasis, you know, I, I always tell people and I've written, I think I sent it to you. You know, I've got some critiques of that book um, of David Bentley Hart's. But um, the other one is that um, you had some people who say at one point you had von Balthasarians that were critiquing Plato for being too general and then critiquing St. Thomas Aquinas for being too platonic. Um, and then, but right now it's all located here. So one way I'm going to phrase what I saw is that the really interesting questions that people want to hear about, like apocastasis, uh, one presenter said that, sure, we get it generally. Like, okay, God, yeah, uh, everybody would eventually be saved. But I can tell you, I know seven college students today who are living in eternal hell, right? They're suicidal. And okay, so we want to say eternity is not infinity. It's not infinite time. And they, they know that. They know that. They're stuck there. So I want to say Bentley Hart, like, you know, when you bring it down to the personal. So this one theologian was like, when you, all these questions about apocastasis and heaven and hell, they're very personal. And I had a very visceral sense at this conference listening to a panel on this and a panel on that, that almost like quantum physics, where there are certain things that go below the quantum level that become unpredictable. So much of systematic theology now is, is there, you know, that it's in the poetic. It really entered the poetic and the individual. Um, and then even von Balthasar himself, like I'm really schooled in that stuff. But what he gives you is all these kind of, uh, these kind of key benchmarks, you know, the cruciform form of the savior, this and that. And it's like a gossamer thread that you can hold on to. And it's somewhat poetic and it's very evanescent. You kind of get it for a while, then it just kind of evanesces. You know, and so even that, there's not much to hold on to. But our friend that we've had on three times, Guido Pepperata, he says we need a whole new canon. And he goes, yeah, Plato, some stuff will keep, but not much. And Aquinas, he goes, the whole thing is gone. And I have my own take on Aquinas, right, which is that when he said it was all straw, it wasn't humility. He said it was all straw. 
Mm-hmm. And then Marie Louis, you know, von Franz, who is Jung's great disciple, she has a book out there trying to prove, and I've read the introduction, but that Aquinas, which was largely held for a long time, that when he when he was done with the Summa, that he wrote this alchemical tract called Aurora Consurgence. You can buy it, and there's an authorship question that hasn't been refuted, but I love the poetry of thinking Aquinas said it's all straw and then writing an alchemical track. And it's something that we need on this authorship question. We need more people to investigate. But, um, you know, I just, I want to say that like, you know, with your dad and apologetics, there's something happening now that it's, it's, you know, with the incarnation, it's going down and down and it's very personal that I almost felt like systematic theology kind of lost its, its thing. You know, it's still too, Thomistic, too platonic. Well, We've got to find a different way of talking. I think we're trying to pioneer it here. Does that make any sense, Michael? I mean, you're one of my closest interlocutors. Um, well, I, I, I think the problem is that with uh, systematic theology, it's it's just become professionalized. Mm-hmm. You know, just like all of academia, it's just professionalized and compartmentalized. And it's no longer related to anything i shouldn't say no longer but very often it's not related to anything that's real which is why i also appreciated von balthasar so much because his turn to the poetic allows splendor one of his favorite words to shine through his his theology but also to show us where that we can locate that in the world Mm -hmm. and and that can be in theology or it can be in creation or whatever it can be in poetry you know that's why he, he writes about all those different things. Mm-hmm. And and I and that's when I wrote the Summer's Reality. That's what I was that was my that was my my game plan right there. Yeah, right, because right. you know, how can I show people? And that's why it's the subtitle is uh Sophiology and the Turn to a Poetic Metaphysics, mm-hmm. because we were so we're we've been so stuck on a kind of rationalistic <laughs> material and, and even materialist when we're talking about spiritual things. Yeah. You know, very uh dogmatic in a in a horrible way right is a the, the kind of manualist tradition that david hart so often and rightly criticizes he has to yeah right? you know you do you do have to because that's the that's the crap we grew up with mike that's but we'll, how I we'll, was be, we'll be talking to like hart in a couple of weeks isn't he still another systematic theologian you know and i guess well i mean i'll i'll be reading more um i just wasn't really impressed with the uh the apocastasis book it's a solid argument. It just doesn't get at the mystery of life at all. You know, and again, force me into heaven. I'm, there's a lot of us who are kind of anarchistic and kind of libertarian. Don't force me there, bro. It just raises a lot of hackles. You're not making me. me go to heaven. Yeah. Yeah. And we get to feel elite. You know, we get to posture that, oh, no, only ignorant people now who haven't read the book or who don't get it would ever think that there's hell. And what am I doing? I, you know, I counseled two people today in this, in this office I'm in who are definitely living in an eternal hell right now. Um, you know, I, the other image I got um, for systematic theology was kind of, and we talk about Sophia, it's like the unicorn tapestries, right? You know, it's this, it's this massive hunt uh, for the unicorn. And when you end it, you're going to kill it. You're going to kill it. Something like that. Mm-hmm. That's right. We, we murder to dissect. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Um, so say more about yourself, uh, Dominic, you know, where, um, how would you... Let me think of a question. You know, so you're on the Regeneration podcast. Um, I also kind of like this generational piece. Um, and you're also building your own website. Give yourself and you're a brander. You know, tell us, let Michael and I learn from you. How would you brand 
just shooting from the hip where we are and where we need to go. Is that a fair question or is it way too? Open? When you say we, you're referring to the Regeneration podcast? No, I'm going to say like, I'm going to say speak generally. Yeah, the church and kind of young people and like where we are at this moment in time. I, um, Pope Francis, is he, is he firing on all cylinders for you or is he getting a lot right and some wrong? Well, so one of the, one of the sites that uh, I've been following and has been deeply... Um, I think the word is germane, but I can't remember the definition. Uh, helpful for part of my journey has been the website where Peter is. And one of the things okay. that they have done is really drill into what does he actually say on his own terms and how does it, not if it does, how does it square with his, the Catholic thing? You know? yeah. And there's nobody else out there that I've known who's like that. And so there's one group that I've good for uh, them, not just yoked myself to, but I will listen carefully to them as well and integrate that. I, I love the Holy Father. And, and I think because my dad's from Brazil, um, I grew up with a lot of that Latin American je ne sais quoi, you know, whatever mm. the word is. And I, when he's, the Holy Father speaks, it's not a problem for me to understand him or just kind of get where he's coming from. And when he's sort of flippant about these fundamentals, like, well, I know what you're saying and how you're approaching stuff. For me, it's not a big deal. I like it too. So, but I always I say airplane interviews are the best thing out there. They drive all the neurotic people crazy. They, I, I think they're the best literature, right? When he's just shooting from the hip on an airplane. Yeah. Oh. Um, to your question, one of the things that for yeah. me has been, how do I say? I have a little, uh, a little girl and in, she's about nine years old now. And part of my challenge is I don't actually know what I want to share with her. I feel like I have drunk from so many springs I want to know what it is I can distill that's actually going to be helpful for her because I know I cannot give her what, what I was fed on. What a great um, way of framing this. Continue, yeah. So, so in a way for me, there's, uh, there's a, a re-engagement with so many things that needs to happen to make sure that you know, what I share with her is, uh, is what I feel is real. Uh, and, and re-engagement with the real. And I, like Michael uh, Martin, I sure wish I would understand how, what it is you have shared with your children, because I'd love to understand that. But anyhow, the other thing that's also helping me, I think, also re-engage with the real and try to understand what is growing in me as a distinct charism for the church now is I have a, a beloved family member who is no longer uh, practicing catholic and actually can't stand religion at all very much the kind of you know uh, spiritual but not religious sort of thing and um in conversing you know with, with this person a lot what i begin to realize is not just my inability but the inability i think for the church today and for religion today to make any form of connection with this person because it is so much of a post Christian sort of thing. And as this person is talking, all I hear is, well, the kind of things like not appropriate to say, which is, yes, you've learned this thing, but you haven't gone far enough. Yes, you're in love with science, but you haven't gone far enough. You know, there's unsung, unread people out there like Teilhard and, and Steiner and uh, Powis. You're like, you know, and then there's stuff like epigenetics and epiphenomena and, you know, Sheldrake, stuff like matter is not what you think it is. Um, spirit and, and, and matter are not this, you know, dichotomy, um, whatever, the whole materialism thing, it feels 
so obvious, I think, to, uh, not to put this person down, but to a child's mind. But then you have these wisdom traditions that are embracing the experience of the real, but understanding what it is also communicating, how it is this embodiment of um, the hierarchies and everything that Steiner and Tomberg love to, to riff on and talk about and the angels. And, you know, in, I'm at a loss for actually how to talk about this. And that's actually kind of part of the problem. And I think part of the solution, at least for me, is to sit with this person and not actually have all of the answers because that's my apologetics ghost haunting me, wanting to say things clearly and accurately and in doing so miss the pain that the person is in and understand that they're in pain because they have been through or they have grown up in a terrible family system that was encouraged to be that way and to foment that kind of spiritual abuse by the parish that they were in and by the kind of Catholicism and Christianity that they were given, which, of course, Hart would call so deeply infernalist, um, <laughs> uh, elitist or meritocratic or whatever. And none of this, of course, is the actual, uh, the actual gospel, but in a way that damage has been done on so many levels. And there is so much inner work that now needs to 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 be done so much re-softening of the sense of self this the 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 love of of my personality and then well for both of us is the fear of death because we fight so hard then to become free of all of these terrible things and then you're yeah i'm still on a deadline anyway and for me that's been something uh i think that i've inherited from uh from my own parents is this i mean it's a human thing too but this deep fear of of death as an end and this is another reason why i've fallen in love with again these lineup of, of speakers and so on because they not only advocate you know death where is thy sting and death is not the end but the fact that it's human life and human living is the prelude to a much larger story but it's the necessary proving ground for your capacity to to grow in resilience and receptivity to this the greater adventure of what is to be alive and to begin to start to see that. And again, that comes back to, well, where are the wisdom schools? That's what they're supposed to be teaching us. And so part of this is like, yes, there's lots of learning stuff that needs to happen, but then there's also, I need the silence and a little Tai Chi in the mornings to come back into my body. I need to stop watching YouTube and podcasts every time I'm cooking and play I Spy with my little girl and see where those conversations go. And what I then find is every day is like a key that is trying to unlock me to find out what it is, like, what is my contribution? Who am I, you know, apart from all of the ghosts that are rattling around inside of me to begin to understand what is it that I'm actually here for and, and who actually am I apart from everything that I've imbibed from well everybody else and all those that I have been told or thought are these are the ways to be um so bit of a ramble I liked um, it that was I good it. Yeah. That, was, that was a great ramble no you're reminding me of you know the the responsibility of a parent right so how do you bring your children into this and this is actually 
when we had the COVID 2016, that was a big part of it is because like, what are you going to have the kids? You know, how, how is this going to become living for them? Yeah. And uh, before that happened, my daughter, Zelly, who's now 19, I, I was in the house one day and I caught her bawling. She was crying her eyes. What's the matter? I'm just going to hell. I'm such a horrible person. I said, where, where did you get this? And the Martin household. I'm this book. Oh, okay. And what, what it was, Bonnie had a, I don't know if she was using it for anything, but it was like that, that lousy version for kids of the Baltimore catechism. And yeah. Zelly, Zelly, who was a precocious reader. So she was probably five or six and she was reading at, at a, probably a fourth or fifth grade level. I'm like you're reading this. <laughs> I threw it away that uh-huh. moment. So this is not how we're going to teach you. <coughs> God is, you know. So that sense and, of there's this uh, a scrupulosity, obviously, like uh-huh. this rigidity the Holy Father speaks to all the time. But there is this scrupulosity in that kind of literature, and I became very intensely scrupulous for a long time. And then this it's so painful, Dominic. I deal with also, a lot of it's so painful. So, I don't deal with it personally, but I've seen again so many young people so heavily burdened by that. That's right. And here's the thing, guys. You're supposed to celebrate the mass, <laughs> not endure it, you know. And and everything should be that, right? This is why this is why we do all the festivals here on the farm. In fact, yeah, and again, it should be the anti-scrupulosity, right? That's the Sophia, like the feminine. You can't put it. You can't put a grid on it. The flowing, the growing, you know, all this stuff, the real that's constantly in motion. Uh, again, Michael said we we have to like divide in order to we have to kill in order to understand. Yeah, yeah. That's why it's so urgent because in an anxious world, almost any of us could be scrupulous. So it's imperative that we get uh, the Sophianic element so that we know that like our whole thing's in motion, folks. You know, mm-hmm. I, I always say like, you know, you take a young college kid who's kind of OCD uh-huh. and you tell him there's this kind of club that'll tell you to say certain prayers on a Monday, certain on a Wednesday, that you can eat meat at this time, but not at the other time. And they gravitate towards it like flies to shit. They say like, how can I sign up? And, but they're signing themselves up for a prison, you know, but just as I asked, you know, I'm always trying to flip the script. You know, the problem with our priesthood right now is like, look at a seminary, which is so dysfunctional and say, who would be drawn to that? You know, we need a completely different way of training priests. But we're getting the people, the medium is the message. You know, Michael Martin was talking about uh, reading Barry Sanders' book that he did with Ivan Illich. Uh, but when Ivan Illich looked at schooling, you know, it was the medium is the message. But it's a sense of urgency, which is not the liberalization. And that's where maybe, and I, you know, forgive me when I mentioned like Richard Rohr or Dan Horan, at one side, you know, when they speak, I've got four kids at St. Bonaventure and Dan Horan speaks for all the time. And he could just be seen as kind of a nondescript Commonweal and Commonweal's fine, but you know, just kind of this kind of bland, kind of liberal Catholic, and he's much more than that. But um, you know, we're all hungry for something that's not just the tertium quid, but um, truly Sophianic, you know, and truly with the real. Um, this is what riveted me about um, well, Tomberg's you know tarot, and I was just yeah. rereading my highlights last night to uh, just remember some of them, where he speaks to the great what did he call it? The great sacred magic that Catholicism is. And he keeps and, on using the phrase enzymatic, right? It's like enzymes, yes. a fermenting, yeah. a growing thing. He's trying to create a growing in you. Yeah. He's not trying to hand on a deposit of faith, right? This, you know, this big this big museum, you know. Um, yeah. And even that, even though the Holy Father also speaks to the church as sort of the hospital, you know, the field hospital. For it's sinners, great. Yeah. I think it's, yeah. it's wonderful, but it's also, it's another 
uh, insight. Yes, it's where there's part museum going on, there's part field hospital, yeah. there's also part festival, you know. But I think we've completely lost any sense of Catholicism being a festival like what, what Martin does. But I confess one of the things that I've grappled with, and again, I spent the one year at Christendom, and it was one of those mile markers in my life that also pushed me out of uh, the, the very narrow view that I had of the world, because it did engage me with so many other wonderful people, just in my case, just real human beings, um, which is the first contact with the real. Um, and then just learning things that I'd never learned before. And that opened me up to a hunger for learning. But in the 10 years since looking back at that and looking back at things like classical education, and uh, I've yet to thoroughly sort of vet this idea, but I think one of the problems that we're consistently stuck in is that uh, our curriculums, of course, are based out of the last three, 400 years. And we're constantly teaching people how to think like three, 400 years ago. Well, completely. They're still thinking like ancient, you know, Greeks and so on. And this is one of the reasons why I've not really read anything by Horan except for his one book on um, uh, Catholicism and Emerging Personhood. And he tackles Duns Scotus in a way that is incredibly compelling to me about how do we need to, it's time now to rethink uh, what is a human being, but from a Catholic, you know, mystic as opposed to him. an ancient Greek philosopher who we now pretty much, you know, generally accept was, you know, um, it, not inconsistent. What's the word? It's not an adequate understanding of the human person. Mm -hmm. um, so constantly reading the classics, you know, and, and I worked at Seton Home Study School for four years and, and did that kind of, that was my homeschool curriculum for a long You've time. you got a crazy background. Oh, it's, yeah, oh, accidental world traveler. Um, yeah. But that, again, everything in that curriculum well, I, I'm assuming everything is always well-intended, well-intended as it is. It is all, not just out of the last four or 500 years with all of its attendant problems and so on, but there's this, this absolute silence of renewed, uh, renewal in catechesis, renewal in literature. It's Michael, your, your points about, we need a Sophia University here. Like we need a whole new school. And this is what Steiner set out to go and do. And he ended up sort of, blowing the roof off the cathedral and to let in everything that's you know all, everything trying to come in um that's what i'm i want to understand and that's what i want to help bring to the world because i think there is nothing that is more important and otherwise we're just going to keep firing lives at each other like guns and you know i think that's why the council vatican ii did what it did because after the two world wars the, <clears throat> the as you said the administration the elites just looked at everything and thought everything we're teaching is it's just not working. I mean, everybody fighting here is all Catholic. We're all Christian. We're all emerging out of these, these mm -hmm. traditions. There's absolutely no wisdom tradition going on. Everything is completely depersonalized. Um, and coming back to what we said earlier in the conversation, it's the, I think it's the greatest uh, temptation of today. To Everything is depersonalized and outside of me, as opposed mm -hmm. to recentering that. And you can only do that through actually living your own life but when is that ever encouraged or taught or shown and i look at the last you know stuff that things the things that you speak to and the things that i have read and wish there was sort of a light version of all of this stuff that could be given to a new generation um because this is now the first time in history that it's all been brought together it's all in a single device. I mean, before the last 30 years, nobody could access this stuff. If it was buried in the Sorbonne or the Vatican archives, 
and this is for, I guess, for my age and my generation, the excitement for me of the future and what this can, where this can go. Because yes, things are accelerating at an incredible pace and my, me and older people and so on have a hard time feeling like just staying up with things or keeping you know caught up. But at the same time, I think that there's also a blessing um, behind the speed because it's also going to be the fastest way that we can help provide an antidote. Um, yeah. Blake called it a consolidation of error too, right? You know, the speed, it's, it's uh, at the last minute, it's kind of congealing so we can see its shape, yes. name it, and maybe cast it out. Yeah. This is one of the funny things, and, and I assume we need to start wrapping here. Yeah. Um, growing up, the, the book that we read was called Revolution, Counter-Revolution. And um, it was so funny walking away from it, realizing the church does not need to be counter-revolutionary. She <laughs> needs to be about renewal. Otherwise, you're always fighting a rearguard action against... The, the proactivity of the evil side. And yeah, and artists have no role. Artists have no role in counter-revolution, do they, Michael? You're an artist. No, and that's what you see in, in Rod Dreher, right? Yeah. I mean, I, as, as I respect him, but that's his downfall is that bunker mentality. Everybody's right? talking about Hungary now. I get it. I might rather live there than France, but it's not the answer, right? No. It's a rear guard action. It might be a haven in a heartless world. but <clears throat> And that's and, and I think you have, we have to regenerate where we are yeah yeah now it, it's not you know it's not some other place you have to start where you are right and, yeah. and with everything yeah. you know it, it's you don't wait till things are perfect you start with with what you have what's right with what's right in front of you and honestly this and, the sociological metaphysics it creates a completely new view of history and it changes the story completely for me the story of the last 400 years has been uh, a frog march it down to hell in a handbasket with these successive revolutions just nails in coffin as culture becomes progressively de-Christianized. But now I look back and realize, oh no, every single one of these revolutions was a corrective response to a calcifying of how the church has reacted yeah. with the state yeah, yeah, yeah. or created situations. And the human spirit, and I say human spirit in the loose terms, I would say it's Sophia kind of rolling over. Um, it's never going to stay this way. It can't because it does not incorporate the, the full genius of the human spirit. And of course, the uh, emerging, Steiner would say, probably the Christ impulse. You know, right. creation not closed. The first act of creation ended with the incarnation. Now there's a new thing. It didn't end like a billion years ago with a big right. bang. It began with Christ. And now we're in this amazing new phase. And I think that we still haven't caught up to that. We're still, still haven't caught up to that. Yeah. Well, you're very eloquent on everything. Michael, some closing remarks or? Um, well, I think, I think I would love where Dominic ended right there because I think that's, that's the, that's the thing. That's the ticket. And, you know, and that's what I've been working toward. For, yeah. Christ um, yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Right. You know, I mean, it's, we're... it's like St. Patrick's breastplate, right? Yep. Christ before me, Christ within me, Christ to my right side, to Christ to my left side. And yeah, you ever see there's a beautiful moment in the film uh, To the Wonder, I think it is, it. by Terrence Malick, where this priest is going through to through the really rough part of Oklahoma with the really poor people. And as he's going through there, he's actually 
praying a version of, of St. Patrick's Breastplate. Yeah, yeah. You heard that the outtakes from that movie were the hit at the Cannes Movie Festival two years ago? I did not hear that. You know, yeah, no, it's huge. I'll have to look into that because you're a Malik fan. Yeah. The All the uh, Javier Bardem, right? Is that the priest yeah. who played? Yeah. So, you know, Malik, he just films and films and films. And they splice the best things that weren't in the movie, Just and they're meditative. But there's there's hours of that stuff, Michael. You'll wow. have to find it. I'll yeah. find it for sure. Yeah. So Dominic, we'll have you on again. I can't thank you enough. Again, <laughs> I, I find you're you know you're very clear, and again, like a very very sorry to hear about uh, the sickness of your wife. The very sorry to hear about a split with your dad. But like the clarity you've inherited from that apologetics training, you've definitely taken you know the lemon and turned it into lemonade. I'm, and I'm not trying to be trite <laughs> with that. I didn't say. I guess I was trite, but um. <laughs> You know, but you've 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 kind of laying that down in a, in a real neat way that I've learned. I've certainly learned more than I've given with this. So again, Smart Catholics, do you want to give people the actual web address for that? Yeah, smartcatholics.com. It's a, uh, a free online community. At this point, it doesn't have <clears throat> any of this level of discussion in it. Um, largely, I don't know, you could say the last three years have just been putting down the foundations and looking for a direction or perhaps just giving myself the permission to accept the direction I've always wanted it to go in. Yeah, And I think having these kinds of conversations and God willing, being able to serve, support and collaborate with you. Uh, this is the kind of smart Catholic, you know, stuff that needs to happen to get us out of our heads and then back yeah. down into our hearts. Because that's yeah. it's not smart to stay in the top left quadrant. You know, what a brain. great way to wrap it up. Yeah, it's not smart does not mean staying in the head. In fact, that's the opposite. Well, again, uh, bless you and your family. Uh, we'll, we'll stay in touch. It's kind of a community here. And uh, can't thank you enough for joining us on the our Regeneration Podcast. Next week, who do we have coming up, Mr. Martin? Oh, it's the Robert Powell one, right? Is Robert Powell next week? Good. Translator. <laughs> um, yeah, you'll have to tell me the questions you want to ask him. He's delved into astrology and so many other things. But again, the translator of Meditations of the Tarot. So uh, again, thank you, Dominic. And we look forward to uh, seeing our friends again next week on the Regeneration Podcast. Have a thank good you. week. Yeah.